Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. I am Ken Levine, your podcast host. Got a treat this week and next. My guest is Steve Young. Now, Steve, for 25 years, was a writer on the David Letterman show. We're going to talk a lot about that. But also, he turned a hobby into an amazing documentary. It's a documentary called Bathtubs Over Broadway, and you can find it on Netflix. That's where I discovered it. It's also on Amazon and YouTube and probably 17 other platforms. But it is all about these industrial Broadway-type shows that were done for conventions and salespeople. So they're like Broadway shows but they're about cars and cat food and that type of thing. Here's an example. To dream the impossible dream To increase sales by 20% To check stock and to fill in the staples To make sure sports shirts keep getting sold this week we talk about bathtubs over Broadway. Next week we talk about David Letterman. Let's get into it. Steve Young, my guest, this week and next on Hollywood and Levine. So, Steve, I want to get into industrial musicals first, and then I want to talk to you a little bit about writing for David Letterman. But I was introduced to you... One night, sitting around looking for something to watch on Netflix, and I see this thing, Bathtubs Over Broadway, and I go, well, okay, this sounds kind of fun. It's fantastic. <laughs> it was fantastic. All about the world of industrial musicals. So let's go back to the beginning. How did this whole idea originate for you? Well, first of all, Ken, thank you for having me on, and I'm I'm so glad you got in touch, uh, and I'm so glad that this movie and this world resonated with you so much. For me, it began uh, really, I guess, about 30 years ago. Now, I was uh, a relatively new uh, TV comedy writer. I'd just gotten hired at the Letterman Show. My very first day at the Letterman Show, the head writer Steve O'Donnell said, let's get you an office. And he uh, brought me down a the hall. There had been several writers leaving. There was a sort of changeover. 
I got an office with a, bu- a bunch of record albums in boxes. I said, what is this? And Steve O'Donnell said, oh, we do a bit on the show called Dave's Record Collection with the weird, funny records. Maybe you can be the new guy running Dave's Record Collection. So already on my first day, although I didn't know it, uh, the first step had been taken down this road. So I would go out and find weird records that we could hold up on the show and make fun of, unintentionally hilarious records. And I started finding in thrift shops and used record stores around the city these souvenir albums from company conventions and sales meetings. And you might think, well, that's just going to be a dismal speech or something (laughs) by a a vice president. But they were musicals. They were custom-written, original Broadway-style musical shows about the company and its products. And and the audiences were only people in the company, The, the sales force, the dealers, the distributors. These shows were all to get them fired up to sell the new line of tractors or light bulbs or to face the problems of being a Coca-Cola bottler or an office furniture distributor or something. And I just thought, this is the most insane thing I've ever encountered on a conceptual basis. So I love it for that. And we're definitely going to make fun of this on the show. But then the second part crept in, which was some of this music is actually fantastic this is way wrong. This should not be good at all, but I can't stop singing the insurance sales musical songs or the diesel engine <laughs> distribution songs. What is going on? And I just started thinking, how much of this is there? And that kind of is the start of the story, which the documentary uh, kicks off with me finding this stuff and sneering at it, but then taking a turn toward maybe I shouldn't dismiss it entirely because these are earworms and there's obviously a lot of money behind this. It sounds great. It's just, it's about selling uh, kids sneakers or whatever, but it is just another universe that I couldn't have imagined. So I started looking into it on my own, not really for the show anymore. And it brought me way down a path that I could not have imagined how big and broad and deep it would be. So I imagine these records were basically made just as souvenirs for the sales force, et cetera. I mean, how did you come upon, <laughs> like, you can't go to, you know, Sam Goody's and, and buy, uh, well, I'm, I'm looking for an album about bathroom uh, fixtures. Uh, what do you have? <laughs> Yeah, that's the the crazy thing about this stuff is all the records are marked not for sale, not for commercial use, not for airplay, private souvenir album. So it, it turned out that these things were pressed in very, very small quantities, private pressing records, sure. just to give to people within the company, like the dealers who'd been to the new uh 1957 Ford introduction show and you'd get all excited about the new Fords and then you'd have the souvenir album to bring home and listen to and get excited all over again. And hopefully your wife and kids would, would, would be also riled up about these new Fords sound wonderful. And I can't wait to sell them, but yeah, private pressings. And sometimes there's only one copy known in the world of, of so many of these things because so few wow. 
Yeah. I've got a lot of like the only known copies. My collector friends, they've all got examples that are the only known copy. Some of them are relatively common and there might've been a few thousand pressed, but even then that's common by the standards of this stuff, which is you might go your whole life looking in record stores and flea markets and never see one. Okay. So it's one thing to have this interest and have this quest and it's another to turn it into an actual documentary how did you hook up with a filmmaker and decide to go on this journey on film? Well, a couple things happened. Uh, a friend of mine, a guy named Sport Murphy, who I met, uh, it's a uh, great name. Yep. He, he's <laughs> another guy who had similar sensibilities to me. Turned out we were fighting over the same things on eBay. Occasionally he decided to find out who I was. And then we, became friends. And he said, I think there's a book in this. I know some publishers. So that was uh, how we got going on the book, which came out in 2013. Uh, meanwhile, I was friends with a woman at the Letterman show who was an editor. Her name was Deva Huizenant. And she had an unusually finely tuned comedic sense and just huge skills and I knew she was somebody I wanted to stay in touch with. And when the book came out, she said, I think that there's a documentary film to be made here. There's so much crazy stuff musically, and you're finding films now, and you're meeting so many people. And the stories you tell me in which you get emotional about the people you've met and, and the interactions you've had, I think there's so much more than even the book hinted at let's do this if you're if you're willing to go along on that trip and i said absolutely i already was completely confident in her uh taste and sensibility and uh and her ability as an editor and filmmaker i said this is going to be great and of course i was completely vindicated it took 4 years to make the movie the, an indie documentary is is a slow moving uncertain thing oftentimes, but I, I never wavered in my confidence. We'll get back to more of Steve Young in a moment, but first a word from my sponsor, Honey. I have a question for you. How would you like to save money? Yeah, I figured that would get your attention. Well, you can do it with Honey, and it's absolutely free. Honey is the free browser extension that scours the Internet for promo codes, and it applies the best ones it finds to your cart. It supports over 30,000 stores online, and they range from sites that deal with uh, tech and gaming products to fashion, even food delivery. And it's so simple, and like I said, it is free. How does it work? Well, okay, you're shopping online, and when you check out, the Honey button drops down, and all you got to do is click apply coupons wait a couple of seconds it does its thing and then you see your price go down and down and down it's actually very cool i used it last week and i saved eleven dollars and 95 cents on art supplies honey has found over 17 million members 
Wow, a lot of people listen to this podcast, and they have saved people over $2 billion. So if you don't already have honey, you could straight up be missing out on free savings. Like I said, many times it's free, and it installs in just a few seconds. And by getting it, you'll be doing yourself a solid, and you'll be supporting this humble podcast. So get honey for free at joinhoney.com slash levine. That's joinhoney.com slash Levine. So let's talk about the shows themselves. Um, They were really big budget extravaganzas. You know, they they weren't just these these little shows, you know, waiting for Guffman. Uh, You know, these were very expensive shows. And a lot of people who went on to have big Broadway careers actually kind of cut their teeth on some of these things, right? Yeah, there's an enormous spectrum. There is a low end, and probably very few of those made it onto vinyl. But you have the uh, floor tile company sales meeting show held in a hotel ballroom with one piano and five uh, performers who are gamely knocking out song parodies about floor tile. That's the sort of low end of it. The upper end is actually shocking about uh, the production value and budgets of these things. And I've met many writers and performers who said, I'm glad you found out all, all about this because I would try to tell people and they would not believe me. Uh, my friend, Hank Beebe, the uh, great, composer who's uh, prominent in the movie he talks about the first one he ever did it was in the mid 50s i think 1956 chevy hired him to write the show for the introduction of the 57 chevy line to the dealers and in the movie if i watch it with an audience there's always a gasp when he says yeah the first chevy show i did the budget was three million $3 $3 million in 1957. 1956 or seven. Yeah. It, there was so much money sloshing through this stuff. I think it was. Compare tactical. that with a Broadway show. What was a Broadway show at the time? Yeah. He had the figure for my fair lady from around the same time as, as uh, $456,000. <laughs> and to be fair, the Chevy show probably packed up and traveled around the country in a series of trucks and the cast was flown from city to city and, and they weren't charging tickets for it prices. So, I mean, it was all expenditure, but I think the way these things work financially, I think the company got to write it off on their taxes. As oh, I'm business. sure. Yeah. And they, it really was this sort of arms race for a long time of if you're a real player in whatever industry, you got to show it by putting on the biggest, craziest show that anyone's ever seen with 40 dancing girls and a full orchestra and things exploding and dropping from the ceiling. You have to dazzle people to prove that you are at the top of the heap in your industry. And you had, uh, well, you had, they they had some actual stars. Uh, you you have a scene in in the movie where Tony Randall is in one of these these shows. And I knew Tony. I, I worked for him on a, on a show. He looks so uncomfortable <laughs> standing there. He looks so uncomfortable. Well, for some of these uh, A-list people from the real show business world, it was a quick paycheck. 
Sure. But there, there were a lot of names, and we, we have some of them in the movie, people who were on their way up who were taking these corporate gigs for the money, but also they found there was such quality in, in the production and choreographers and composers and set designers, all terrific people because the company said, who's great? Let's just get them. And, and suddenly you're working with people you really respected and learned from. Florence Henderson, who uh, did a number of these shows, said, those Oldsmobile shows I did, I would put them up against anything that was on Broadway. They were that good. They were that A-plus professional. So some of it was just kind of, oh, God, just let's get through this and cash the check. But a surprising amount of it was, all right, we're all a dream team here of creators and technicians. What are we going to do that we're actually going to be kind of thrilled by? And the audience, it may just blow right past them. They're going to see it once and not know what hit them. But Hank Beebe told me we could not do less than our best work on this stuff because that's just who we were. Sure. You had guys like Sidney Harnick uh, wrote for some of those shows early in his career. Oh, uh, yeah, Sheldon Harnick and um, uh, Jerry Bach. Uh, I had no idea what those names were. I had this Ford Tractor musical with the names on it. And my friend, again, Steve O'Donnell, Letterman (laughs) writer, I showed him this record. He said, do you know who they are? They wrote Fiddler on the Roof. And I said, "Uh, that is news to me. I'm too ignorant on some things to fully appreciate what I've stumbled onto. But I started learning. Yeah, they had... uh, there was a General Electric show, John Kander and Fred Ebb, right before they became famous for cabaret, mm-hmm. doing industrials. Uh, Cheetah Rivera was cutting her teeth in the 50s on some of the uh, industrials. Up and down the line for decades, people were climbing the ladder and meeting people and networking and learning their craft by doing this stuff. And along the way, so little of it was recorded. That's the other thing. For every show that I have on vinyl, there are probably a hundred that were just not recorded at all. So I only have the tiny little fragment of what was done. Well, I have one that was not recorded that I was involved with, which I told this story, I think, once before on the podcast, but I'm going to tell it again. And that is when I was in the Army Reserves, this is like 1973 or four. Uh, the army was concerned that soldiers, especially reservists, were not re-enlisting. So we had our two-week summer camp, and I was with an armed forces radio reserve unit, which means, you know, if we're ever called up, God, we're in trouble. But we we do our two-week summer camp at Fort Carson, Colorado, and there's no radio station there. There's absolutely nothing for us to do. And some brilliant general back in Washington had the idea, well, maybe a way to get soldiers to re-enlist is to have a Broadway-style musical on the subject. And we got basically the assignment. We had like a week and a half to write this and to stage it, and then the general was going to fly out the end of our second week and see this thing. So 
this was really my first writing credit. My first writing partner, who was a member of the unit at the time, was Joel Siegel from uh, ABC, you know, Good Morning America and, uh, you know, that, that kind of thing. So it was me and Joel Siegel and uh, a very talented guy named Robert Harrop. And we wrote this show. We did it as you know, a parody of West Side Story. You know, so we had songs like Re-Up, I Just Met a Private Who Re-Upped, you know, that kind of thing. (laughs) Terrible, just terrible. So we slapped this thing together, and then we're going to have a performance of it in the big bass theater. And I think they forced a lot of the... the soldiers from the base that they, they had to attend this thing. Okay. Cause we had like a full house. We had three, 400 soldiers for this thing and a general. And so we start performing this show and look out in the crowd. And it is like the scene in the producers where you look in the audience and people are just aghast. Uh. Just the jaws are on the ground. Like, what the fuck am I watching? And so we get done with it and we laugh. We're like, okay, well, that's that's our two-week summer camp. General comes backstage. Loved it. Uh. (laughs) And for the next two to three years, my Army Reserve duty was once a month they would fly us commercial and put us up in hotels and everything else up and down the West Coast performing this show. We'd go to Phoenix and then we'd go to Portland and we'd go down to San Diego and that that type of thing up to San Francisco doing this show. And the same reaction every time from the audience, like, what the fuck am I watching? But uh, yeah, that was our Army show. And unfortunately, uh, there is no recording of of that it's probably fortunate because i would ah, i would I have to kill really. anybody who put it online that's that's right on the line of whether that's fortunate or unfortunate but uh <laughs> two comments if i may first of all thank you for your musical theater service your country is cool <laughs> uh, and second yeah some of these shows are misbegotten of course i mean you never know what ingredients you're going to have bubbling together whether it's just uh, a decent concept or a terrible idea good talent bad talent uh just a mismatch overall but i learned that uh sometimes great people came together with some synergy and alchemy and the most unpromising topic whether it's um selling tires or uh selling tractors or whatever Sometimes weird heights of genius were reached, and I've heard of composers telling me you'd you'd watch the audience of of, of salesmen of uh, like B.F. Goodrich tire dealers with tears streaming down their faces because <laughs> the music and the the message that the company hears you. We know what you're up against out there. You're fighting a war that few people understand, but we are behind you. And you are not only out there to make money, but you're out there to make your life better for your family and your community and your country and the world. You could actually hit these flights of something noble is happening. And with the right music and the right performers, it actually lifted off and really 
hit people right in the chest. Not every time, certainly. And it sounds like you did your best there, and maybe that was uh, an impossible situation. And- no, we should have gotten to Tony. <laughs> uh, they, they were wrong. <laughs> they, they, were, they just didn't understand. We were ahead of our time. They, they well, just didn't get it. I believe you're you're right, and you may still be ahead of your time. I'm not sure, but uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it's such a a weird world. And I knew nothing really about musical theater and what it could be. It's just oh yeah, musicals. That's something for other people, and it's weird, and I don't quite get it. And I that's got thrilling when it works. When I got through a sort of weird side door into this world and learned about it from this upside down and backwards angle. And now I, I don't love all musicals, but I've, I've certainly found more legitimate musicals that I watch more carefully and think about and appreciate and sometimes love. Sweeney Todd, I think, uh, would have been helped with a song in the middle about bathrooms. Don't you think? <laughs> there, there is kind of a weird overlap. Sometimes real musicals come right up to the line on that. Uh, Sheldon Harnick and Jerry Bach, who we mentioned, uh, before Fiddler on the Roof, they had a musical called She Loves You. It was around 1963, and it's set in a store, and a lot of it is about getting uh, the store's products sold and how do you interact with the public and how to sell stuff. And I said to Sheldon at one point, that's actually weirdly close to some of the stuff that comes up in industrials, which you and Jerry Bach had been doing for years at that point. Do you think that influenced you? And that's how that kind of got in, you got into that, the, that quadrant of a, a show. And he said, you know, I never really thought about that before, but I'm sure that must be true. We'd been so immersed in this stuff for industrials, probably some of it slid over into, and there's a how to succeed in business without really trying, which I mm-hmm. actually love. Uh, the movie from 1961, I just love. You're never going to be that far away from stories about what people do with their lives and how do you make money and how do you feel okay about what you do every day. Industrials put that front and center, but even other kinds of shows and songs, it's usually somewhere. So now I wonder. Anything. Now I wonder when I look back at Fiddler Around the Roof, whether the original song was "If I Were a Fuller Brush Man." <laughs> I have heard <laughs> industrial parodies of Fiddler on the Roof, of course, from like lawnmower companies and all that. And the parody stuff that you were doing—I mean—that is a fairly large proportion of what happened out in the industrial show world. And I have a lot of records where it's. Uh, parodies of My Fair Lady or parodies of South Pacific or whatever. And that stuff's okay. Some of it can be amusing, but I was blown away by the original music and lyrics that like General Electric or Pepsi Cola or whatever was commissioning for their like top tier shows. It's just like, all right, who's, who's hot, who's cool, who's available, how much money will they need to write this uh, show about hospital gowns or whatever, and it just it shouldn't work, but sometimes it really does. The thing I really loved about your movie is that you you certainly feature a lot of those, and and I, in a few minutes I want to just play a couple of snippets, some examples, but you really kind of get into the human aspect of it, and 
we really start feeling for these people and their passion for this and the pride they took in this so that it's not just a, a movie a tongue-in-cheek look at musicals, but there's also a, a real foundation of humanity in it. I spent many years at the Letterman Show every day writing stuff, most of which doesn't get picked. Some stuff gets on and does okay, but is forgotten. And so you have to, if you're a creative person, reconcile yourself to how do you keep doing your best work when so little of it is ever going to mean anything to anyone. And that was exactly the position that these writers and performers were in. If you're a musical theater writer or composer or a lyricist, and the best stuff you ever did was for a fluorescent light fixture dealer musical that was seen once by 200 people and then was gone forever. How do you feel okay about that? You can't explain it to the outside world, and now it's gone on top of that. So that's a version of the struggle that all creative people and maybe all people with any sort of endeavor have. And that's kind of what, where this started branching out to something universal. Uh, talk a little bit about the the revivals, because you put some of these people together. You went and did some reunions and some shows. And it turns out some of these people, as a result of your movie, I guess, or your book, are fans. They know that these, you know, formerly obscure composers and performers uh, had a night where there was an audience and they were singing their bathroom songs and the audience was applauding. And, and that must have been a great night for all. Right. And uh, not to give too many spoilers away for any of your listeners who are hoping to check out the movie. But yes, uh, sometimes I would meet these people and say, I'm a fan of your work. And they would say, how can you possibly know what that is? Because it's not for you and it was never out there. And I said, uh, but I found it. And it's great, and we're going to talk about it. And what's more, in the, the case of uh, one woman who sang on that American Standard plumbing fixture musical, when I, I did a show uh, with film clips and stories about this stuff, haven't done it lately because of the pandemic, but it, at one show in Chicago, I said, Pat, you're going to come to this show because she lived nearby. And I said, after the, the bathrooms movie, I'm going to bring you up on stage. And number one, the audience is going to go nuts. And then number two, we're going to do the big My Bathroom song. I'm going to play guitar and you're going to sing. And the audience is just going to be turned upside down. They will not be able to believe how great this is. And my prediction was 100% true. She still sings gloriously. I got through a simple arrangement on a guitar the audience just, they could not have cared less about this four hours earlier. And now they were just, oh my God, we're seeing history being made in front of our eyes. This is the greatest thing. So great for me, but great for the people who finally had their stories told and their talents acknowledged. Hank Beebe, another one, uh, Sid Siegel, uh, so many people who did great work and just had resign themselves to no one will ever understand this and then surprise no now you've got people watching this movie and saying 
wow, I want to be like Hank Beebe. I want to be like Sid Siegel. I want to be like Pat and, and do great work, whether or not anyone cares. Yes, we'd love to have the world know about it and get paid and all that, but just people doing good work for good reasons that, that felt really good to get them into the spotlight. And here is a snippet of the bathroom song. My bathroom, my bathroom is a private kind of place. Very special kind of place. And now you provided me with a, a number of snippets, so I put together a little montage. And here are some examples of the type of songs that were done for these industrial musicals. Check them out. RCA's new solid state. Will it sell? Yes. Will it sell? Yes. We've seen the sets. They're looking great. Will it sell? Yes. Will it sell? Yes. Can you sell it? Yes. Can you sell it? Yes. Will they buy it? Yes. Fun stuff, some really fun stuff. So this really spanned a time period of like the 1950s through the 70s. They were very big. Was it just that there was more money those days? How come it kind of petered out? Well, now we're getting into the areas where you think, well, a sort of a comedy writer shouldn't know all this but i went down so deep into this and talked to so many people i sort of became a social and business amateur historian and i can tell you yeah i'd say the golden age was mid 50s to the mid to late 80s and a few things changed as the 80s went on uh, these were not new anymore the novelty was wearing off there was a whole new generation of people coming into the workforce who really were not thrilled by classical musical theater and Hello, Dolly and My Fair Lady. They were more Led Zeppelin, Van Halen, disco, uh, whole new realms of music. And sometimes industrials tried to catch up with that with varying results. I mean, there are <laughs> disco Ted, themes. Ted Nugent doing something for Sears, that type of thing. The, roughly, yeah, like trying to, oh, the rock music's popular now. We better get the, that in there for the show. But uh, economically, things were changing. You had consultants and accountants eventually saying that 
the benefits of doing this are are intangible. Uh, You may say, well, it helped the bottom line because people were fired up, but we we can't really prove that. Also, I think the tax code was changing and all sorts of business models were changing. And there was just this feeling that we're done with that. It didn't go away entirely. It never goes away. And I think your army show proves that there's going to always be this impulse of an organization wants to get its team excited and drawn into something and, and feel like there's a next level of magic that you can access through a, a stage show and an exciting live event. And, and, and we will do that and it will have an effect, an aura that will last. Sometimes I think there was actual data that said, well, the McDonald's same store figures went way up after the show. Uh, people really were recommitted to the, to the company and the work, but it, it largely went away, but has never completely gone away. Well, it's a, an interesting era. Again, the movie is Bathtubs Over Broadway. It's available on Netflix and very well received. You were in the Tribeca Film Festival. I, I looked, you've been in like 15 festivals and you win all these awards. And, and there was some Cheetah Rivera award and you had Cheetah Rivera in your movie and you were nominated, but you didn't win the Cheetah Rivera award. Yeah, <laughs> all the awards the, you lost, you lost the Cheetah Rivera award. That was for, I think, uh, dancing in a, uh, in a, movie and we had a great choreographer not again not to give too much away but uh, we did some original uh musical theater production of our own in this movie deva the director won best new documentary director at the tribeca film festival and then we went on touring around the country and beyond the country for quite a while and she won so many audience favorite and best documentary awards it Turns out, uh, like we were saying, people assume this will be some cheap, shallow, snarky, kitschy thing. And then it just wallops you with the story about the biggest questions of, of human life. about What do we do and why do we do it? And how do we how do we connect with our fellow man? And she got all that into 87 minutes in a, just a blizzard of crazy music and visuals and adventure. Uh, it really is uh thrilling yes uh netflix and also itunes and amazon we do have a soundtrack album out i should point out okay great well like i said i found it and i think a lot of people are i the day after i watched it i got a text from friend of mine eric nadell who's the radio announcer of the texas rangers Uh and he said Oh my God! You got to see this movie. <laughs> I just saw this movie. This bathtubs over Broadway. You got to see this movie. So it's like eh, everybody is catching on from all kinds of different worlds, and uh, it's it's really worth seeing. I recommend it. Thank you. It is a great word of mouth movie. We're definitely finding that, and uh, it's thrilling to hear from a lot of people. And look, now I'm chatting with you. So uh, one more uh, ripple rippling outward in the pond from throwing in this little pebble. Oh, yeah. Your, your sales, your viewing, it's just going to skyrocket as a result of this podcast. 
And that's part one of my two-part interview with Steve Young. Next week, we talk about David Letterman and what it's like to work on The David Letterman Show. And if you want to be a writer of late-night TV, how do you do it? What do you send? What are they looking for? All of that and more next week here on Hollywood and Levine. Our thanks, as always, to Adam and Susie Meister, Butler, Howard Hoffman, John Wolford, Bruce, and Jason Miller. If you would like to get in touch with me, my email address is hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. That is hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. I'm on Twitter, at Ken Levine. I'm also on Instagram, Hollywood and Levine. And lately, I have been featuring some of my cartoons. So if uh, you want to see some of my doodles, check that out. Uh, Follow me on Instagram, Hollywood and Levine. Part two of Steve Young, coming up next week right here on Hollywood and the Vine.